God, we, uh, we've just sung things that we, we truly mean. We want you to speak. We want to hear you. We want you to, uh, through your Spirit, uh, do what it is your Spirit does to convict us, to comfort us, to guide us in all truth. And we, uh, we come to you humbly. Uh, we, we come to you repentantly. We come to you expectantly. And we come to you very hungry to know what it is you say to us. Um, I pray that you would, uh, you would give us eyes and ears to, uh, to digest, uh, to, to see, hear, and digest the word you give us. You give us a strong word today, and we thank you for it. We thank you that you care enough to tell us good things that we need to hear, even if we don't want to hear them. And we thank you so much for your sweet word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we will be in, um, we will be in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, the, the last verses of 1 Corinthians 6, uh, this is uh, verses 12 through 20, and, um, and uh, as you, you, can find, you can find it in your Bibles there, uh, now we will be standing here shortly, but not right at the moment. Um, one of the things that we, we find here in, uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians is, uh, is that Paul is writing to a church, um, I would say, has the church gone sideways? Um, the pride has taken them uh, to, to a strange place. Um, and, and it's not a, a uniquely strange place. It's just a, maybe an unfortunate place that, that oftentimes we with Corinthian hearts find ourselves in as well. This is a uh, Corinthian church is struggling with stuff that is actually unfortunately pretty normal in many churches throughout history. Um, uh, but one of the things that he really focuses in on is he says, you, you're very smart. You're, you're very informed. You know God, uh, but you don't, you don't really live as though you know God. Or, or maybe you don't know how God really connects to your life entirely. Um, we see that there's, there's something that he's going to be addressing here that's, that's somewhat of a disconnect between what they know of God and how they live their lives. Uh, and today we're going um, to be in that topic, and, and the topic that, that arises here is this idea of, of sexual immorality. And so I did want to give just a little bit of a, a preface here. We're going to read uh, what Paul has for us today, um, but um, you know, due to the content of this, I'll, I'll give us a very good gospel you know, framework for, for engaging, uh, engaging this, uh, though the details of it I will leave to, um, to, to parents to kind of talk through with their kids. If you want some great gospel resources for talking about sexual immorality um, and just kind of everything that that all entails with your, with your family, I know that there's a, um, there are many. Uh, if you have any recommendations of ones that have been helpful, any parents who have used some, please share those with us because we all, all of us are smarter than any of us. Uh, but, but, but one that I've come across is there's a company called Axis, and they give great stuff about just how to, to raise, you know, raise youth uh, in today, and they speak to so many different issues because it's not just one issue now. It's just a whole bunch of things you have to talk about with kids. Uh, Axis, um, and uh, they, uh, they do a great job of kind of coaching families through just really, really firm ways of, of thinking through a gospel-centered approach to human sexuality. And so I want to give you some of that there. But uh, the rest of our sermon here will give us some, some more framework and really speak a lot more to our bodies and our use of our bodies in, 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 the, in the context of our daily act of worship. So uh, before we get too far, I wanted to give that little, little uh, heads up there. Um, but I, now I want to, uh, you know, hear one of the things we do with our bodies is we as we'll talk about, is that we teach them by rehearsing things. When someone of great importance comes into a room, you rise. When someone speaks, you stand. And so that's one of the reasons why we oftentimes will stand when we hear the Lord speak His Word to us. So I'd ask, out of reverence for God's Word, that if you're able to, that you would stand as we hear how God has revealed Himself to us in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. 
And we hear him say, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall, then, uh, shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but sexual immorality, uh, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, from whom you, uh, from whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Though the Corinthian church is very intelligent in knowledge of God, uh, they have this fleshly detachment uh, from the gospel. Uh, that is, the, the good news of, of, of Christ, and not simply the good news of Christ that He saves sinners through faith, but also the richness that the gospel affords us uh, in the way of living, the wisdom of Christ crucified, and the way of living that out in everyday life. And so, the, the Corinthian church has not put into effect the gospel that they know, and Paul kind of reasons to this, and maybe there are, there, there are several reasons that we kind of see as, uh, even though this is kind of a transition passage from what Paul has heard, he says this in, in chapter 5, verse 1, I've heard these things are among you, and now he's going to, in chapter 7, verse 1, he's going to say, and now what you have written, so he's hearing things, and he's reading things, and he's, and he's kind of making this turn to get us to where we need to be in the next chapter, um, but even in the midst of that, there's a whole lot that he's dealing with in these few verses. And it seems as though, you know, kind of what is he correcting would maybe be my question. It seems that maybe that the Corinthian church here has lived uh, as though their bodies don't have any effect on their spiritual life. Now, this was common, you know, in, in some, you know, Greek uh, philosophies uh, back then, is, is that there's this idea that we can learn a whole bunch of things, but then what we go and do outside of our knowledge, uh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, we get a really great ex example of this is, is oftentimes we create an identity online that has nothing to do with our real life, and we can just fabricate whatever we want up here and do something different. We kind of experience that a little bit as we, as we curate what identity we want somewhere. But here, they're, they're taking this, uh, you know, a, a different way here. They're, they're saying that I believe something, the knowledge I have of God, a lot tight, lock tight theology, and then whatever I do on the weekend, over the week, whatever, that, is, that has no connection. That, that's, this is wrong. Paul is saying this is, this is not the gospel. This is not how reality works. Maybe another uh, thing that they're misunderstanding is that they understood their freedom in Christ. Uh, and it maybe it seems to have, have been an overrealized. Maybe they say there's so much freedom here that it's produced in them kind of a cavalier, God forgives all the time, ungrateful approach to, to forgiveness. So I can go do whatever I want because, right, this is a God who forgives everything. So let's just go for it. 
Um, and then we'll come back and he'll forgive us. And then we just keep doing whatever we do. And it seems as though maybe that's maybe what they're referencing here in these first verses. Uh, maybe not, but, but I think that's something that's part of this, this culture here. I think there's another misunderstanding that the, that the Corinthian church has is that what they do with their bodies is their own business. It doesn't affect anybody else. It's, they're, they're their own person, and, and they're distant from the community. Um, and he's going he's gonna to correct that uh, in, a, in a very fair way. And I feel like Paul is kind of cleaning up some of these wrong ideas. These, they're maybe slightly off, maybe incredibly off, uh, but he's going to bring us to this understanding of our bodies. Throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, we hear a lot about the flesh. Uh, we hear about this fleshly way of thinking. Um, and this idea of the flesh, Paul uses oftentimes, and especially here in 1 Corinthians, is more to, when we hear flesh, we, we think maybe worldly. He's going to mention flesh here, and it means like actual flesh. But um, but there's this worldly way of living. It's kind of striking when you look at all of 1 Corinthians and then you see how many times and how, uh, and how intense the word body is used in this passage. It just jumps off the page. Uh, he says body, 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 body when he's been using the word flesh. I mean, this is a small thing and you can be like, Josh, you're just a super nerd, but it means something. Uh, it means something. He understands that we just don't quite get how our bodies play into life. He really wants to bring up the theology of body and its use for Christian worship. And so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to see that they have a few things off, which takes them to horrible ends. And so we'll take a little bit of that avenue, but I want to give kind of this idea of what is, what is the purpose of our body in everyday life. And so uh, kind of as maybe an outline would go, um, I've got two phrases and I'll turn them into three points somehow. I don't know how that math works. But uh, the first point is going to be um, that our bodies tell and teach. Our bodies tell and teach. This is all under the heading and the urge that Paul gives us of the last phrase in the passage, glorify God with your bodies. That's where he's going to take us. Glorify God with your bodies. Something we need to know is that our bodies tell and teach. Uh, the other thing that we'll need to know, the other phrase, is that our bodies uh, are clinging uh, and they conform. Our bodies cling and conform. So that's kind of, they tell and teach, they cling and conform. So we'll kind of go through the text that way. Hopefully that's a helpful way to remember some of this. Uh, this first point, our, our bodies tell and teach. So what's behind this? Maybe what Paul is thinking or what Paul already knows that isn't maybe state here, but he's drawing from is that they tell. Our bodies express our inner realities. And so if you think about this a little bit, what you think to be real, what you understand as reality actually directs a lot of what you end up doing in life. Uh, an example would be, you can tell if someone has not simply thought that exercise was good, but the, the reality of exercise and its necessity in their life has caused them to go exercise. I mean, you can kind of just go see people who are fit. At some level, you can tell their, from their body that they believe the reality of exercise in their life needs to take a priority of some kind. Uh, maybe you could see this with diet as well. Uh, what we eat, what we don't eat, um, how we eat, uh, frequency of eating, all those kind of things just fall into diet. Someone who has had a reality of a certain thing, you know, whether it's, you know, this fad diet or that diet, I mean, you see people that maybe get on one fad diet and another, they actually feel like that is the reality. And to, to condemn them for that, I'm not sure if that's a, that's a helpful thing, but you can tell that they're doing things with their body in line with the reality as they understand it. I think this goes to other things, not just, uh, not just you know, health. Um, but you can tell if, I mean, you could tell if, if, if someone is, is confident, if they actually believe that they are a person of, of worth, of ability, 
I mean, just the way they carry themselves, the way they express themselves, their body tells what their reality is. You give someone encouragement and it lifts them up. Someone's sad, someone's upset, someone's frustrated, someone's hopeless, someone's incredibly joyful. Their reality is being expressed with their body. There is a connection of these things here, so also then theology. Who you understand to be your God, how you understand the gospel and its implications in your life, when that is reality, this is the urge of Paul, make it your reality, it is your reality, align with the reality, then that will direct your use of your body. How he does this in such few words, I don't know. Um, but, uh, but it's incredible. So he says uh, here, one of the realities we need to know here uh, is just a huge one. Verse 15, do you not know? And he says this, like when he, when he asks this question, do you not know? He's going to ask it three times, and this is kind of the outline that we, that we have for us today. When he says, do you not know, it's like, this is a reality we should all know. Like, that's what he's saying. Like, don't, don't you remember? This is like the basics here. So this one's apparently one of the basics for us to know. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? I'm going I'm to explain this a little bit more. That your body is united with Christ. When we become Christians, when we become, this is, I mean, this is the, the beginning of the gospel. When we become Christians, when we uh, repent of our sins, when we express faith in Christ, um, we don't actually wash ourselves clean. We don't justify ourselves. We don't get all of those things, and then we're good enough to Christ. That's, sometimes we think that. Like, we think that repentance and faith makes us good enough, and now we're with Christ. Rather, he says, hey, you wretched mess, I love you, come here, you're with me, and then we are justified because of that union with Christ. We aren't made good enough to be with Him. We are good because we are with Him, if that makes sense. That's a small nuance that we get sometimes that's different, and that could take us to trying to be better every day. We are justified. That means His righteousness is given to us. His righteousness is ours because He welcomes us to be united with Him. Uh, we, are, um, we are sanctified, made holy because His holiness is ours because we are one with Him. And so he says, don't you know that you are members? You are united with Jesus Christ. And this is just the amazing part of the gospel because this pulls from verses 9, 10, and 11, which we were just in if we had been reading, you know, the whole thing. The idea that he has there is he says, you know, don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, and that's kind of what we're talking about right now, nor idolaters, interesting, we'll get there, how close sexual immorality and idolatry are, uh, nor idolaters, those sexually immoral outside of marriage, or nor men who are practice homosexuality. Now, the ESV here just really waters down the intensity of Paul's words that he actually had there for homosexuality. It's any part of the homosexual relationship uh, that's there. He says all of these things are sin. All of these are wrong. All of these are kind of in, in where we're talking about it, a misunderstanding of how you were created the meaning it has, the purposes you have, and how you are to glorify God with your body. We're going to see that this is not only an offense to God, but it is also hurtful to ourselves. It dehumanizes us when we go with these practices. And so, uh, one, one author says, one commentator says, um, when we have this, uh, this, this union with Christ, when we are united to Him, some things we get that we live in that we wouldn't uh, are, are this life, this resurrection life. He says, the power of Christ's resurrection is active in the lives of Christians because of this union. And we read this here in verse 14. 
And God raised the Lord, and because we're united with him, he will also raise us. We live in this resurrection glory power already, not yet. We'll see the full glory, but now we live in this. That hope, that joy, that peace, that purity, that's yours now. That victory over that sexually immoral sin is yours now. This is what happens in this union with Christ. And so as our bodies express these inner realities, when we go and do these things, they, they tell of what we understand the reality to be. And this is our reality, that we are one with Christ. They also, though, as we do them, teach us. They tell what we believe, but they also shape what we do. I can understand reverence of God, but when I start standing up and down, no matter what part of the song or how awkward it is in the service, but I know that every time the Lord speaks, I'm going to stand up, something happens when my with my body that teaches me, oh yeah, a Pavlovian response to reverence. Oh, God's speaking, time to stand up. It just, it teaches you something in a way that you can't just read in a book. Be reverent, be reverent, be reverent. That's nice, but now I feel what reverence is. And so, and so our bodies do that. When we go and do sexually immoral things, we show that transgression of the law when it's been clearly stated, going past it, you know, you, you, you break into that, that, that house, you cross that no trespassing sign one time, and the first time, you're like terrified. And then the second time, you're like, oh yeah, wait, wait, wait. Nobody, this is just a sign. No one's actually doing it. And then you go again, and again, and again, and again, and the law degrades, and your reality is that the law doesn't mean anything because your body has practiced again and again and again that maybe this isn't real. Our bodies tell and they teach. There's meaning, there's purpose, there's a weight to our bodies. I hope that's kind of the point we're trying to make here. Your body means something. So what do we do with this? Our bodies are, this is point two, our bodies are clingy. We are clingy people. Um, <laughs> socially clingy, relationally clingy. We are designed to be really clingy. Verse 15, the second half. He says, if, we, if our bodies are members of Christ, then shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! He says, if we're clinging to Christ, should we just go and try and cling to whatever? No, because we're designed that way. And he goes on to, he goes on to show how sticky this kind of uh, nature is in us. This clinginess for relationship uh, is so tight. Um, in verse 16, he says, do you know that he who is joined, I'll pause there, he who is joined. If you have an ESV Bible, you'll have a little note there, follow that note. Uh, this is the stem word here in the Greek is also the stem in the Greek in Genesis 2 when it says, and, and, and a man will leave his mother and his father and he will cling to, he will cleave to his wife. It's tight. It's, it's, it's designed to be that way. It's designed to be the greatest magnet you have ever seen. It is designed to be the strongest hold there ever is, and that's why when we go to weddings, Christian weddings, um, there's a man, there's a woman, and there's God. This is an inseparable. What, what, what God has joined together, let no man separate, right? Because it's so clingy. We're designed to be clingy this way. I think it's like um, when I was a kid, uh, I don't they had these like... Um, catching glove. It's like a Velcro catch pad. It's like this like Frisbee with Velcro on it. And then you have like a tennis ball. Okay. Okay. I'm getting some nods here. Okay. This is good. This is good. We weren't alone. Okay. So you throw it. What happens is you, you get out and it's all neon colors. Super awesome. You throw it in the first time. You're like, <laughs> and so this is Josh Casey. I'm a beast. So I'd like, 
actually stand on it and have to pull up because the arms just have been about this big since I was five. And, uh, and so I just couldn't, I was so stinking clingy. I just would not come undone. And we finally get it, you know, and then you throw the first about four or five throws. I mean, it's just like, oh my gosh, this is, this is horrible. And then you kind of break it in, I guess, which is actually becoming less sticky. But then you keep throwing and throwing and throwing. After a while, what ends up happening? You get that good, nice throw. Your arm's warmed up. Your pad's worn out. And all of a sudden, boom, and it bounces. You're like, oh my gosh. Now what do we do, right? Everybody's did this, right? I'm not alone. They, they, they bounce. It's, it's what Velcro does. It wears out. Um, but then you know the game is over when the, 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 the tennis ball wears out because then it, it falls into the grass and it gets the leaves and you spend the rest of your game just like picking leaves off the tennis ball. It's the worst. Um, maybe your tennis balls are way better than mine, but ours were trash. Um, and so you end up with this like leaf-covered tennis ball and like this Velcro-covered Frisbee and that's about all you got. It's just... They're, they're useless. I hope within all of the humor there, you're getting the connection here. We're made to be clingy. You do that over and over and over and over and over. You actually make yourself not useful for what you have been designed to be. You were made to be amazingly clingy. And over time, you dehumanize yourself. Like there's a meaning and purpose in this. And it's not just adulterous relationship. It's all sexual immorality. The word in the Greek here is pornea. Sounds a whole lot like something we know of. The whole gamut is pornea. And the word he says in here is, you are designed to be this clingy because the Trinity is this clingy. You are reflecting your Creator. You are designed in the image of God to be this way, and he screams at the people, flee pornea all of it, run away, this is no good. He says, every other sin, a, man, uh, a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And that is just, that is just huge. He says, not only are you not living out the way, the image of God, but you're destroying yourself. He said, you're dehumanizing who you are because it's against what you were designed to be. Now, I, I see this a little bit this way. So what are we designed to be? We're designed to be image bearers and worshipers of God. So if you go with me, I don't have, you know, a nice little diagram here, but I think you can get it on one arm and on the other arm. So you have yourself. You know, a little Josh Casey right here, and you put your name in there. Um, and then you have your body. You, with something, do something to someone. Josh Casey is designed with his body to, as we get from our text, to worship the Lord and glorify him, or uh, to worship and glorify the Lord. Josh Casey, with his body, is to worship and glorify the Lord. I think that's pretty close to what our text says here. If we, if we map that over to what's the other side of this, but Josh Casey uses his body, worship, no, sexual immorality, to glorify self. This is why when we read in verses 9 through 11, there's such a great connection. Why? He didn't accidentally, Paul didn't accidentally say, hey, sexual immorality, and then, I don't know, idolatry, and then, oh, I got some more sexual sins here. They're all lumped together. Idolatry and sexual immorality are very similar. Sexual immorality is the fleshly worship 
of self. When you give of yourself, when you use yourself for servant-like humility and building up others, that's where all of Corinthians is going to take us. Take your knowledge, activate it with your heart of love to helping others. But when you don't, you end up putting sexual morality on the altar of yourself. We're going to get to how we acknowledge this and see this because this is a big, big problem. This is why it's offensive, not because it's gross and icky, because in our age, that's what we feel like. Sexual immorality is an icky sin. He's not saying, don't do this. You, gross, don't do this. He's saying, you're fundamentally worshiping a different God when you go to sexual immorality. I'm not just making that up. I basically just mapped out Romans 1. For although they knew God, they have the knowledge, like you and I, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him but they became futile in their thinking. They went this way that, that, that seemed right, but it's, it's futile. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal man. Hmm. That is that unfortunate exchange that happens with sexual immorality. Many of the other sins, because we see so many other sins there in verse Six, that all sins are the same and we have other things. But I'm speaking specifically because the text speaks specifically of sexual immorality. And it hurts your relationship. We are going to get here a little bit more. But when you, if you are married, this is an extra offense because you have been united and there is one body with you. And so spouses, men or women, because we both struggle with this, when you go to sexual immorality... You not only hurt yourself and your understanding, you almost get this, 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 this distance, this shame, guilt, which is good from the Spirit, but sometimes almost debilitating that God is downcast on you and you are shameful, and that's going to mess with you. That is not the relationship God has. But you also mar a relationship with, with the other flesh in your, in your body. That's why this kind of sin hurts relationships so bad, <laughs> because it's it's, it's designed to, and God calls us to, like, pleads with us, don't. <laughs> don't, because this is going to destroy things. Our bodies tell and teach. Our bodies are clingy, uh, and our bodies conform. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now here's the point of the sermon where I'm going to give the nice, nerdy reveal. Uh, we've been talking about your body, and Americans are very individualistic, but the word here is actually in the plural. He's more or less, every time he says your here, every time he said your so far uh, in, 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 the, in the text, uh, in 1 Corinthians, uh, he's actually saying y'all's, y'all's body, uh, all of your body. Um, I think sometimes, somewhere, we got this idea that, that each of us are walking temples uh, of the Lord, that we're individual temples of the Lord. There's one temple. Uh, we read back at uh, the other time we've talked about the temple in 1 Corinthians. That's chapter 3. 3.16 says, and you are all the temple. Y'all are the temple of God. So maybe if we change this, this provides us maybe that accountability structure. You are not a temple, and it's your job to make sure the temple is pure. You and I are all more like blocks in the wall of the temple. Bunch of blocks there. Who's building this temple? It is the Lord who builds this temple. We read this. He's building his building, chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians. 
but we also see that, that, that in this amazing mystery that is the gospel, that is the church, that it's not just the walls and we're just a bunch of blocks looking at each other. There's something beautiful in this. We're called to relate to each other. It's just one image of how we relate uh, with each other. We're called to, to, to make sure someone doesn't decide, hey, I'm just going to head out you know, of, this, uh, of this temple and go cling to some other wall here. But we find that we're, we're not just a human experiment. We are also a supernatural union with Christ because we read in John 2 that there is more to this temple. And Jesus says, tear down the temple, I'll build it up. And then we get the author, you know, leans in and says, and you all know that, that temple is Jesus. The foundation, that firm foundation we have is Christ. We are the blocks built on this thing. And so sexual immorality is when we say, I think... I think I'm going to just exit out of this wall and move on and move to some other thing. He says, you can't do that. That's not how this works. There's a whole bunch of relationship here. There's a whole bunch of, 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 of beauty here. The Spirit only dwells in this temple, not over there. Over there is a pile of bricks, is destruction. Here is the glory of God. Your right purpose, your right beauty, you mean something in this wall. So cling together, cling to Christ in this act. So I think the bottom line that I would put there is emphatically, how you use your body actually matters to all of us. It may not be all of our business to be in what you're doing, but it matters to us how we go about and use our bodies for the glory of God. We're being built according to His blueprint. That is, your freedom from sin is not a license to sin. This is where the Corinthians were off. You can't just do whatever you want. You can't just go build another building. There's a certain way this is being built. You were bought and redeemed at a price. This is verse 20. You are meant for the Lord. You have a purpose. This is verse 13. It, you, and, and living in resurrection life, verse 13, you are to glorify God with your body. This is how it all comes together here. I'll go back to, uh, to Romans because it's uh, filled with wonderful things. Romans, chapter, uh, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Listen to everything we've been talking about, this idea of bodies, this idea of, of, of our minds and what we think, this idea of living out within the community. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. When your mind is renewed to Christ, then your, then your worship is calibrated to Christ, and then your bodies will go that direction for the glory of God. By the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Glorify God with your bodies. Flee pornea. I have three points of maybe then how we take this urge from Paul and say, what do we do with it right now? And this is, you know, just me being real with you in 2020. I feel like the first one is <laughs> we're being called to is repent and believe. Repent of the sin and believe in Christ. I think that's, that's a big thing. Uh, but, but even before that, we have to understand that this is real sin. It seemed like they were okay with doing these things. They just didn't acknowledge or went past the fact that these are really big sins. This is a big deal. And that your bodies matter. There is a connection of our bodies to our faith. There's a weight 
to our sin. And so we need to have those realizations for repentance and belief. I pray oftentimes that, that the Spirit would clarify these words to, to, to you who are, who are here, to you who are uh, watching. Um, oh, every time I'm going to uh, preach, I, I pray that. But I also pray that God would convict you of the reality. I mean, this is years worth. Uh, every time I preach, that He would convict you of the reality of the words that are here. Because if you don't think this is real, then I don't know, you're just going to do the same thing. Because it's not at reality level, your body won't change its behavior. To do this, though, I think that we need to find a community. I think if we view ourselves as this temple being built, we need to find a community. But I want to acknowledge we're in a really strange time right now. This, this idea of cancel culture makes confessing icky sins um, really tough. Um, and so cancel culture, what is that? Uh, cancel culture is more or less this culture we've devised where we just push, we push the splinter out uh, to be burned and, 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 and gotten away with. There is no chance once you have become deplorable, uh, you have been judged by society as, as not worthy, as gross, you're done. There is no redemption. This is not the gospel, but it's our culture. It's really tough to confess these things, even within the church, to know that if you could say something like, hey, I struggle with this, and someone could say, what? I need to, okay, we got, did your wife know? Do your kids know? Do you know? Does everybody know? We got to, we got to, like, there's just this, this, this thing that kind of puts that wall up. There are many other sins that are like this, but this is one where I feel like we, we have to be countercultural in this. How does the church do that? I think the gospel affords us a framework of doing this. I think one of those is, is, that, uh, is that within the Christian community, we need to always be remembering and reminding each other of our design and our purpose. When someone says, this is how, this, I'm, 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 I'm not struggling with this. I think struggle is a good word. I'm tempted and I succumb to this temptation. We need to say that, I love you. That's, that's not how you're designed. Let's work on this. I think, I think the people that I've talked to before, uh, many, many men uh, have struggled with this. I think the church stat holds pretty true. 90% of men in a church struggle with, with this. Uh, and women too. I mean, that's huge. That's alarming. But what closes that door for, gospel, for the gospel to move is to say, you. Oh, that's gross. Oh, this is too much. This is uncomfortable. This is, just seems to be one right now that is, is really icky and really gross for some reason. I mean, for a lot of reasons, it makes sense. But that's not a place that we go. As Christians, we leave that door open for gospel transformation. We, we, we put aside our judgments and we say, oh, God will judge us. It sounds like you're repentant. If you're telling me you have a level of repentance, let's stoke that fire and let's build some structures there. Now, I do want to speak, though, if your spouse is this, because I've already mentioned this, you know, this oneness that's there that, that, that really struggles. Um, as I want to remind you here that, that maybe the phrase, this sin is against your body. I think that's what the scripture says here. It's against your body. So it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt a lot but it is not because of it. I think that, that oftentimes we can, we can tick over to uh, rightly dealing with the hurt that's there, but sometimes we can stay in that and think, I'm not pretty enough. I'm not worthy enough. I'm not, I'm not respectable enough. I'm not whatever enough. And we can sit in this self-loathing of, I am the cause of their unlove and going somewhere. And that can be really, really difficult. I think we need to acknowledge the hurt that happens when a member of our one body in marriage struggles with this. 
but we also need to suspend that judgment and go to the person as well and say, and you also have something that we need to help with. I can pray for you. I can talk with you. But I think what's really helpful in this, because it's such a sensitive thing, is that we also need to know what our limit is. <laughs> there are a lot of times where, um, where spouse is not going to be helpful. It's going to hurt the relationship more to get to good by knowing some of the details. And some of this stuff, if you really hate sin, you get to the nitty-gritty details and you root every inch of that, every little gram of that cancer out. I'm not sure the spouse is going to need to hear every gram account of, of, uh, of that cancer. That's why we need that community to get there, to have that safe place. place we can share and we can hold each other accountable. We can talk to each other. We can breathe Christ into it, not just the condescending judgment of Jesus. You know, ah, you, why'd you do it again? Um, but I think spouses need to understand that it hurts them, but they may not also be that. But it doesn't define them. That sin is that person's sin and it splashes to the whole community. You are not causing your spouse's sin in this one. The devil is. <laughs> and you may not be the savior by being bigger and better and, and prettier and more successful and more rich. And it's, that's, you're not the savior either. So what do we do? We set boundaries when we, when we put together um, and when we work together on this one. I just want to frame the conversation there, but then how do we work on this? Here's some suggestions I have for setting boundaries. I, I've already said, you know, one resource out there, but um, maybe just some, some things that you can do that don't require money or really a whole lot of thinking here. Um, think through your times of vulnerability. People have those. You know, there, there are different kind of pressures. There are different times of the day. Uh, there Whatever. I don't know what it would be, but just know when you're vulnerable. Um, you know, uh, you know, know uh, then space, the location of temptation. Uh, uh, digital sexual morality is kind of the biggest one right now, but, but no, if you're in a situation with coworkers of, of, of opposite sexes, uh, if, you, if you're in different places, just know when those are and set those boundaries. Oh, we're not going to do that. We're not going to meet here. We're not going to put the TV there. We're not going to, you know, whatever. So know your times, know, know the places. Uh, also, you know, honestly, just with this digital war that we can have, you can block sites. You don't go to those places. There's software. There's a lot of software that's really helpful. Uh, to monitor things and hold people accountable. Um, but here's the crazy thing. You have, if you have internet, you have uh, a router, and routers now are able to block websites. And so you can actually go in for free and type in the websites that you don't go to. And, and you, you, your Wi-Fi won't even let you go there. You have, if you have internet, you already have the power to put that boundary up you can also print reports of what sites are there from your routers. I don't know if you know this. You can print these off and you can check them. You can go over them with your family or you can go over them with, um, with your kids. You can go over them with your spouse. You can go over them with uh, whatever group you have to help you with this. I think then measuring the heart, because these are all kind of outside of you, that you need to know your triggers um, because sexual immorality is so interwoven with idolatry I find that when, when people slip in this area of sexual immorality, it's because something of their self-worth has either been celebrated, they have great success, and they want to go back and worship, or they have great failure, and they just need to feel that worth. Someone needs to praise me, no one is. And I find oftentimes self-worth really plays into this idea of sexual immorality. So know when you're there if, and, and get a better encouragement, uh, get a better uh, humility. Uh, than those things. You can always go to Christ in it. 
And I think that's where I want to end, is that Christ is not disgusted with you. I think that's something that anyone who I've ever, ever heard of struggles with sexual immorality. You just need to know you're not icky, you're not gross, you're a sinner. <laughs> just like everyone else, Christ does not think that you're disgusting. Christ moves towards you, in fact. This is the gospel. He moves towards you. He embraces you, and he forgives you. And chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians says, and he washes you clean. Oh, what a sweet gospel. You are new. You have victory. Lean into that. So flee from pornea and glorify God with your body. Let's turn now to prayer. God, it is so sweet to be disciplined, to read through every word you give us in the order that you give it to us. Golly, I would have loved to topically preach 1 Corinthians and skip this one. <laughs> but man, you give us such sweet, intense goodness by calling us in your love to live rightly, to use our bodies as instruments of glory. We thank you for that. Help us as we digest this and we, we process it. We, we, we build structures here. As we reach out to others, as others reach out to us, I pray that you would just give us the aroma of Christ in all of our reactions. We could say, there, there, dear sinner. Praise God for your repentance. You are loved. Let's get moving towards something good. Thank you for the community of faith, for the other blocks in the temple that you are building. Thank you for the foundation of Jesus Christ.